Hello, readers. Eric Larson is the author of six national bestsellers, Isaac Storm, The Devil in the White City, Thunderstruck, and The Garden of Beasts, Dead Awake, and the most recent addition to that list, the book we're talking about today, The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. Eric, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Eric, let's start with an easy one. What was your goal in writing The Splendid and the Vile? Uh, my goal in writing The Splendid and the Vile was actually to tell a great story. What draws me to book subjects is story. In this case, it was not necessarily Churchill. It was not necessarily that first year of his prime ministry. It was something very different. It was just how does one go about surviving a situation like the Great Blitz? And that question was kind of inspired by my moving to Manhattan and suddenly realizing that the experience of New Yorkers on 9-11 was so much more dramatic than anything I could have imagined, even though we were living in Seattle. I'd watched this thing unfold in real time. So it was really more, it came from this question of how does one survive something like that? And then I started thinking, well, maybe the way to get at that story is to write about how Churchill and his family and his advisors survived it. So that's how that story came about. Just it's the story that drew me. Although the bombing of Great Britain in World War II didn't get going until midway through 1940, Deputy PM Stanley Baldwin warned of the unavoidable devastation of aerial attacks as far back as 1932. Did British officials take protective precautions to address those concerns when they declared war on Germany in 1939? You know, they did and they didn't. Britain was very wise in terms of forethought, building a very sophisticated radar system. And this proved ultimately to be a very, very powerful weapon. But in terms of aircraft production, there were plans to increase aircraft production. There was a schedule, but nowhere near what turned out to be absolutely necessary. And Winston took over for Neville Chamberlain on May 10th, 1940, which was literally less than a month before the bombing campaign got going. And that meant that he became Hitler's main adversary in Great Britain. Although the two men were drastically different as human beings and leaders of men, Churchill acknowledged that they did have one thing in common. What was that? <laughs> yeah, well, he, Churchill said the one thing they had in common was their hatred of whistling. They both <laughs> hated whistling. <laughs> hated whistling. And Churchill did hate it. He really hated whistling. He also hated the sound of hammering. And a more serious question, how did the operations within the British government change when Churchill did take over for Chamberlain? Boy, when Churchill took over, it was like a lightning bolt had just struck 10 Downing Street or Whitehall. Because prior to May 10, 1940, when Churchill became prime minister... Neville Chamberlain had been the PM, and he had been a very different kind of prime minister. He was very methodical, more of an exalted bureaucrat. This will give you an idea of what he was like. His nicknames were the coroner and the old umbrella. And when he got thrown out and Churchill replaced him, again, it was just suddenly this galvanic thing that happened down in Whitehall, which is, of course, the government zone in Britain. And suddenly everything picked up pace by an order of magnitude. He was that kind of guy. What was the message and tone of Churchill's first radio broadcast to the British people, and how was it received by those folks? His first broadcast was basically saying, all I can offer you is blood, sweat, and tears, and that seemed to be a pretty humble and honorable thing for him to say at that point. He wasn't promising anything spectacular right away. He wasn't making anything up, but just telling him what he planned to do. 
You also mentioned that the production of airplanes was maybe a little bit behind up until Churchill took over, but eventually that process did improve. Who was responsible for really boosting the defense provided by the Royal Air Force, and was he somebody that was pretty easy to work with for other people within the government? Yeah, so first of all, Churchill gets a lot of points for recognizing early on that what was going to save the day for Britain was going to be the RAF's fighter wing, because what had to happen above all was that air superiority had to be maintained by the British Air Force. If the Germans achieved air superiority, that would make an invasion of England all the more likely, which was something that was very much feared. So immediately, literally immediately, Churchill invented a new ministry, the Ministry of Aircraft Production, and put in charge of it an old friend of his, their friendship had waxed and waned, but an old friend of his, Lord Beaverbrook, Max Aitken, a newspaper baron, he put him in charge of the ministry, made him Minister of Aircraft Production, because he recognized on some instinctive level that even though this guy had never done anything other than produce newspapers, that he would undoubtedly have the power to shake up the aircraft production industry and galvanize them into making more and more planes. And it turned out that this was really absolutely true to almost a miraculous level. However, it came with that a cost because Beaverbrook was really a difficult guy. Not many people liked him. Churchill liked him. He was his friend. But nonetheless, he even recognized that he could be very, very, very difficult. That's actually why he wanted him as his minister of aircraft production. But this guy was so difficult that to get his way, he would often try to resign and try to, to try to get Churchill's attention. And in the course of that first year of uh, Churchill's prime minister, he did so 14 times. So he, he was a difficult guy to be around. More than once a month. And there were even times where Churchill not only rejected his attempt to resign, he actually gave him a promotion in the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Churchill understood his man. I mean, Churchill understood what Beaverbrook was doing. And he understood that on some level, it was almost a game. It's like when a toddler gets difficult in a family, you know, the parent knows how to deal with the toddler. Until, of course, it got to the point where even Churchill had lost his patience, and then that was the last of Beaverbrook's participation in government. But in that period, especially initially, Beaverbrook was gold. He was a, a fabulous asset. Well, the boosting of the sheer numbers of airplanes within the Royal Air Force is obviously a big boon for protecting Great Britain versus aerial attacks. They dealt with a pretty devastating blow before those attacks got going, and that had to do with Germany overtaking France. Why was that so devastating for the British defense against those aerial attacks? Well, that was a tremendously devastating thing because... British military strategy was based on the idea that France, which had a modern army and had this fortified Maginot line and a powerful navy, but British strategy was based on the idea that France would hold up, would resist, if not be victorious in conflict with Germany. But that proved, of course, not to be the case. And when France fell, we all know, of course, about the Dunkirk evacuation, and France fell soon after that. But when France fell, the immediate implication was huge for Britain, and that was that suddenly German aircraft would be taking off from the French coastline, just minutes from Britain and minutes from London, which completely changed strategy about British strategic thinking about what the Germans could or could not do. Because prior to that, the belief was that the Germans would have to fly their bombers all the way from mainland Germany to Britain, which would be fine. They had the range to do that. But what would be missing in that circumstance was fighter protection, which would be vital for German bombers. Fighters only had about 90 minutes in the air, fighters for both sides, actually, 
But suddenly, when you had German planes on the French coast, with bombers able to reach London in a matter of maybe 20 minutes, there was plenty of time for the fighters to accompany them, which made the bombers much less vulnerable to RAF attack. The bombings started pretty innocuously on Wednesday, June 5th. How willing was the U.S. to help Great Britain at that time? Well, first of all, at that point, Churchill knew that the only way he was going to win this war is if he could drag Roosevelt in. The United States public was not at all willing to be dragged in. Roosevelt, I think, recognized that it would have to happen sooner or later, but he also understood that it was a very ticklish situation in terms of politics. But the way the bombings began was very interesting. It's not well known in the mythology of the Blitz. It's not like Hitler just turned a switch and said, okay, we're going to bomb London. It began in this very slow, kind of suspenseful way with those bombings in June. And when the German planes first started coming over and essentially testing British defenses, nobody in Britain really understood what was happening. They didn't understand that this was going to be the start of the first phase of the air campaign, which is often referred to as the Battle of Britain, let alone that this was going to lead to a concerted bombing campaign against London itself. In mid-June, which is a little bit more than a couple of weeks before the urban bombings began that you just referenced, officials discovered a new technology that allowed the Luftwaffe to hone in on targets in Great Britain, even under murky conditions. What was that technology, and did the revelation help the Brits out? This was kind of a huge thing, also not terribly well known about this period. And Churchill, to his credit, recognized the importance of it. This was a navigational technology involving electromagnetic beams that a young scientist in the air ministry had discovered, had put pieces of this detective story together to realize that there was this top-secret beam technology. And the reason this was so significant is because if the Germans had this kind of thing that would guide them directly to a target or maybe even an individual plant or to a certain locale within a city, If they had this technology, that would mean that they could fly with precision at night or in bad weather, which at this point was still a very difficult proposition. German bombers flying at night typically relied on moonlight and dead reckoning in order to get to their targets and then could not do much of anything in bad weather. Ditto for the RAF. So what happened then was there was this awareness in Britain, thanks to this young scientist and thanks to Churchill's impetus in launching an investigation to determine whether this thing really existed, it gave actually the RAF the opportunity to kind of mess with the Germans by using false beams, bending the beams, having bombs fall in empty fields and so forth. So that was a very compelling chapter in the whole story. Speaking of the RAF, they really did their part to ebb the flow of attacks coming from the German Air Force, really from the first moment that the aerial assaults began. In mid-July, BBC Radio intensified its coverage of these dogfights in the sky by actually posting up cliffside and providing play-by-play of the fighting, like it was a sporting event. How was this received by listeners and by Churchill? Yeah, so... This was a very interesting moment in this period referred to as the Battle of Britain before the bombing of London had begun. So there was this play-by-play account of an aerial battle over the channel with this cliffside by a mobile crew from the BBC. And the broadcast was so enthusiastic as if this were a sporting event that a lot of the listeners, a lot of the British public, were appalled. They felt this was unseemly, you know. These accounts of somebody struggling in the water to get out of his wrecked aircraft and so forth. At the same time, a significant portion of the public also felt themselves heavily roused by this. They thought this was a tremendous account of what had happened and 
how thrilling to be witness to this kind of a battle. And in fact, Churchill felt that it was a very, very thrilling thing as well. I believe he said something to the effect that no form of hunting could be more powerful than flying an aircraft at 300 miles per hour or something to that effect. I'm very bad at quoting, by the way. (laughs) That's quite all right. You got the gist of it just fine. Speaking of Churchill and obviously the battle going on with the Germans, after the Nazis seized France, Hitler, he sought a peace agreement with Great Britain rather than overwhelming them with brute force. Why was he initially so keen on avoiding bloodshed with the British? Yeah, this is an interesting element of the story as well. Hitler really did want to bring Churchill to the negotiating table. It's not out of any sort of humane spirit. I mean, there was nothing humane about Hitler, but basically he wanted to eliminate Britain as an enemy on the rear front. He had aspirations to invade the Soviet Union. He didn't want to have Britain as an active enemy behind him. Hitler had always been afraid of a two-front war and had actually expressed his fear of such in, in his book Mein Kampf. And so he really wanted to bring Churchill to the negotiating table to craft some kind of means of getting Britain to stand down, get out of the war, so he could focus his attention on the Soviet Union. But Churchill, this is one of the things you got to love about Churchill, Churchill was not having any of it. He was just absolutely loathed Hitler. He was not going to accept any kind of peace deal with the Germans. And it was that sheer defiance that actually helped embolden many in Britain and also around the world. You know, it's interesting also, even though the British were able to stand their ground through that summer before the urban bombings really intensified, that summer was full of bad news for the British, much of it having to do with Germany overrunning the French on land and in the seas, and then also the destruction that they were causing in the English countryside and eventually some of those urban settings as well. But it's almost like every time something negative happened that Churchill had to relate to the people, his speeches tended to make them feel loftier, stronger, and above all else, more courageous. Why was that? You know, this is a mark of what made Churchill such a tremendous leader. We all know about excerpts from some of his speeches that are so brilliant, you know, like so much been owed by so many to so few. We know those lines, but really it was more to me how he structured his speeches. It was nice to use that kind of language for those brief excerpts, but the thing was, He was very good at first telling people what the reality was, and he did not sugarcoat. He made sure that in his speeches, he talked about the reality of what Britain was facing. No happy talk allowed. But then he would shift gears and he would talk about actual concrete reasons for why all was not lost, for why people should be optimistic. Again, not happy talk, but specific things. You know, we're doing this, we're doing this, and there is also this that can be done. And then he would end his speeches with the rousing rhetorical parts where, you know, people would be metaphorically lifted from their chairs by whatever heroic thing he was saying. And that was very, very important for helping people to get through those very, very dark days. It helped also, by the way, he had a terrific grasp of history and, of course, was incredibly well read. He had a terrific grasp of history. He was able also, therefore, to help his listeners place themselves in the grand scheme of British history to make them realize, okay, we're not going to let this great history of this great island fail on our time. We're going to rise to the occasion as well. And that was a very powerful thing, too. By mid-July, Hitler was fed up with the British resistance, so he ordered the planning of Operation Sea Lion to be carried out by mid to late August. What was Operation Sea Lion? 
Yeah, Operation Sea Lion was the German high command plan for invading Britain by sea. It was contingent on the Luftwaffe achieving air superiority, which the Luftwaffe chief Hermann Goering had promised to do in a very short time, but thanks to the RAF, failed to do so. A lot of people are familiar with Joseph Goebbels. They know who he was, among other things, the head of propaganda for Germany. How was he engaging with the people of Great Britain via their own radios? Goebbels was kind of an interesting character. I felt it was important to know what the Germans were thinking and how they were reacting to Churchill. Goebbels, like many in Germany, could not understand why Churchill was so defiant, why he would not come to the table. It just seemed like madness to risk life and treasure when the German Air Force to Goebbels was so obviously a superior force. But Joseph Goebbels' big strength, if you will, at least from the perspective of Hitler, was his ability to manage public opinion. And he went to some pretty great lengths and some pretty clever lengths to manipulate Britain into coming to the table by sowing terror of what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. So he was a very important element of the whole campaign. Tuesday, August 13th, 1940, was the start of intensified bombings by the Germans, a day that they were calling Aldertag, or Eagle Day. What was the goal of the mission? How many resources did the Germans commit? And was the mission successful? So this was Hermann Goering's promised effort to knock out the British aircraft industry. He had promised that he ought to be able to do it in about four days. And this was the start of this massive campaign with a thousand aircraft taking off from the French coastline, all sort of converging on targets within Britain. Still not London. Hitler had explicitly barred the banning of the bombing of London because he still harbored this little hope that Churchill might eventually come to the negotiating table and that if he bombed London, that would be foreclosed forever. So Adler Tag, the Day of the Eagle or Eagle Day, was supposed to be this tremendous, massive, triumphant raid by the Luftwaffe. Didn't work out that way, thanks mainly to bad weather, which kind of caused it to begin with sort of a whimper. But nonetheless, it kicked off a significant period of daily raids throughout much of England and the British Isles. And eventually, bombs were dropped on London. As a matter of fact, I learned this from reading your book. The first bombs dropped on London were accidental. The pilots flying at night mistakenly believed they were over aircraft factories and an oil depot. Hitler, who had explicit instructions to still not bomb London, he was furious. What was Churchill's response to those bombs being dropped on London on Saturday, August 24th? As you say, this was accidental, but of course the British had no idea it was accidental. It was the German side that knew that this was an accident. For Churchill, this was kind of an opportunity, if you will, a macabre opportunity, because it now gave him moral justification to in turn send British bombers to Berlin, which he did do. The real London bombings started on September 7th, 1940, so just a couple weeks later. Fittingly, they began at tea time in the mid-afternoon. How widespread was the carnage on the Luftwaffe's first day of focused attacks on London? Yeah, so this was September 7th, 1940. As you say, it was at tea time, you know, around four in the afternoon. By the way, it was on a beautiful day. That summer was noteworthy, not just for the horror of war, but for being spectacularly beautiful. So here it is, a Saturday, it's warm, and actually temperatures actually get up into the 90s in London that day. The stores are full, the parks are full, and so forth. And suddenly, this rain of bombs comes falling down on the city, primarily in the East End, 
in the working class district, the dock district, and did tremendous damage, tremendous damage to the docks, tremendous damage to workers' houses nearby. But also there was a very compelling opportunity for Churchill in that the next day he and an entourage went to the bombed out district and he got out of the car and toured this zone of absolute destruction at a time when it was not at all clear that he would be welcome there. There was a concern that the public burned out of their homes would resent the fact that he and his government had not protected them better. But in fact, the reaction was very different than that. They loved the fact that Churchill had come out to tour the neighborhood. And it proved to be one of the real bold strokes of the war in terms of emboldening people and making them realize that all was not lost. I mean, here was the prime minister himself visiting this bombed out area, weeping at times, which the public also felt was a very important sign because it meant that he actually cared. It was a very powerful moment. It's interesting that at the start of this conversation, you mentioned that gaining a better understanding of 9-11 really inspired you to write this book, because you were describing the scene in areas that were bombed that very first day and night in London. It reminded me of the scene following the tragic events of September 11th, mainly what people were doing as World Trade Centers 1 and 2 were falling and how people were exiting that scene, just the cloud of dust, terrified and covered in dust, dirt, and other identified particles. But unlike September 11th, the affected Londoners had no obvious place to run from or to. Where did people go in the immediate aftermath of their homes or neighborhoods being bombed? Well, you know, it depends on the circumstance. It also depends on the phase of the aerial attack. When the bombs first started falling on London, it became clear that this was not just a one-night thing. And by the way, footnote, this phase of the war, it was 57 consecutive nights of bombing of London. That was the first phase of the campaign directed at London. That's the phase we refer to typically as the Blitz. But so when people began to realize that this was not just a one-night thing, um, the question was, well, gosh, where do you go to protect your family? A lot of people went out to the countryside. A certain number of people went into the tube stations. You know, that's the classic image of the Blitz, people sheltering in the subway system in those deep tube stations. But, you know, a lot of people also sought shelter in the first phase in their own air raid shelters. Many had what were referred to as Anderson shelters buried in their backyards. But as the campaign continued, people became somewhat bolder about the process, much more defiant. And actually, a lot of people just decided they were going to stay in their homes. Some were just going to stay in their beds. Many others, I suppose, just stayed in the basements. But really, people began to just kind of shelter in place, if you will, to borrow a very current term. Speaking of beds, Eric, did the bombings affect Londoners' sex lives? <laughs> Yeah, you betcha. No, I did. I was really intrigued by this. I found this in a number of sources, you know, diaries and public intelligence reports and so forth. But yeah, it seemed that the air raids kind of unleashed a new sexuality in the city of London. And it was kind of understandable. You know, if it's not clear that you're going to live through the next day, you start thinking a little bit differently about what you kind of want out of life. And so... Yes, there was apparently a lot of a lot of sex going on, <laughs> a lot of extramarital affairs. Oddly enough, one little weird little detail that I came across was from this one guy. He ran a lingerie shop. What he found was the business was way down. It had never been worse. 
I mean, you would think it'd be the other way around, right? <laughs> but of course, my own personal theory is that with sex suddenly unleashed, it was like, uh, nobody needs a lingerie anymore. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, those are, those yeah, are unnecessary those are... frills at that point. Yeah, it was unnecessary. I don't know. That's funny. A more serious question, though. You just mentioned that many Londoners who lost their homes were forced into those public shelters. What were the conditions like in these public shelters? Yeah, that was interesting. One has to make a distinction between the kinds of shelters. There were the deep tube stations, which were one thing, but then there were public shelters that were designed to be air raid shelters. But they were designed before the war. The concept was that they would be a place to shelter during the day, and then at night you'd go home because, you know, nobody believed the Germans were going to start bombing at night. It would be too hard to navigate and so forth. But now suddenly these shelters began to become like second homes for people where they would spend the night. And so they were furnished with multi-tier bunks and so forth, but they did not have the sanitation or the capacity really for this kind of operation. And one of the most telling moments was when Winston Churchill's wife, Clementine, that's pronounced Clementine, started visiting some of these public shelters to try to get a sense of what the conditions were like. And her reports, which I found in the National Archives of the UK and London are really eye-opening, A, because what they portray is just absolutely disgusting. I mean, like ponds of urine and so forth, but mainly revelatory because of who's doing the revealing. This is Clementine Churchill, who is walking through these things and describing it all with Dickensian detail. It's very powerful. It also had a very strong effect on her husband, who understood that the condition of these shelters was going to be very important politically going down the road. And so thanks to her and thanks to other accounts, he made it a real priority to make these public shelters much more habitable. Speaking of Clementine's husband, generally speaking, when the sirens wailed to warn of another air raid, what was Churchill's routine at 10 Downing Street? <laughs> Churchill Churchill was by nature a very courageous, if not fearless guy. When an air raid occurred, Churchill, more than not, would climb to the nearest rooftop and actually watch the raid unfold. Not necessarily the most prudent thing, but not a bad thing symbolically to do because it showed the public that this guy was, in fact, a very courageous guy. I should note he also, by the way, had, at a later point, one of his daughters became an anti-aircraft gunner. And whenever he got the chance during a raid, he would go out to her battery and watch the guns blast away at the planes up above. I mean, this is the kind of guy he was. What was the frog speech, and how did it affect the direction of the war? Well, the frog speech, I, I'm not sure it really had all that much effect on the war, but it was a lovely moment because it was Churchill's direct address to the French to try to rally the French and raise their courage against their oppressors, you know, the Nazis. And this was a speech he had planned to do in his own awful French. <laughs> he had planned to write it, but... <laughs> But he had needed, actually, to have a very talented translator ultimately got involved in the thing. But Churchill referred to it in, in sort of off moments as his frog speech, because that was a pejorative term for a Frenchman. But it turned out to be a very moving moment, because for the first time, the prime minister of Britain was addressing in French the French people. While there are plenty of moments to point to of Churchill as an incredible orator, literally one of the best of all time, was there anything that happened in his first year as PM that left him speechless or with very little to say? Well, he found himself at times deeply moved by the devastation and the carnage that he encountered. And at times, actually, he was moved to tears. You know, he was not at all ashamed to weep. You know, there was one moment I think that was particularly telling, and that was when he and a large entourage, in this case, Clementine and daughter Mary and a number of his senior officials, 
were to go to the town of Bristol, where he was going to confer some honorary degrees on certain officials. And as the train is approaching the town that night, the city undergoes a severe bombing that luckily Churchill and his special train are on a siding far enough outside town that they're not affected, but they see this whole thing happening. The next day, they arrive in the town anyway, and Churchill confers these degrees, even as people in the audience are sitting there covered with soot, their clothes wet from fighting fires, and there's fire raging next door and so forth. And Churchill was very, very, very moved by all this. And as this huge crowd of people follows him back to his train, he gets on the train, he's waving to all these people. And then as soon as the train is far enough away that he figures they can no longer see him waving, he stops waving, picks up a newspaper so that no one else in the car can see him. And he just begins to weep openly, just made speechless by that moment. From the start of the bombings, Churchill was in contact with FDR, all but begging America for help. Eventually, FDR sent one of his closest confidants, Harry Hopkins, to visit with Churchill and hang out in Great Britain to try and figure out, one, whether it was worth America getting into this war, and two, why it would be worth doing so. On Hopkins' first weekend in England, he spent it at Winston Churchill's full moon getaway at Ditchley, Following dinner on Saturday, the women left the dining room as the men enjoyed cigars and brandy. What transpired from there? Yeah, first of all, Harry Hopkins was a very important character as it happens. He was Roosevelt's emissary. This was part of Churchill's effort, as he put it early in the war, to drag America in. He wanted America to come in as a belligerent, and he felt that by courting Harry Hopkins... He could get closer and closer to having Roosevelt actually join the war. But at this weekend, Hopkins is giving a little talk about what he'd like to see happen, I guess. And he quotes the Book of Ruth. He says that basically the United States is with Britain, with Churchill until the very end. And it was a very moving moment for everybody in the room on that occasion. You wrote about the horrific scene inside Café de Paris after the March 8th air raids, and it was really one of the only times I can recall you going into a grotesquely personalized detail of the destruction caused by the German Air Force. This was three-fourths of the way into the book. Were you intentionally trying to avoid these sorts of stories? And if so, why was this one worth those pages? It does no good to dwell on the absolute macabre details over and over and over again. For one thing, from a narrative perspective, they lose their power. But in this case, it was the most important to try to delve into the particular incident because, in a sense, it involved Churchill's youngest surviving daughter, Mary Churchill. She had really the juxtaposition of scenes that I was after. Mary Churchill had gone um, that Saturday evening to Queen Charlotte's Ball. It's the annual debutante ball. She was there with her mother, with her friends, and this was in an underground ballroom. And in fact, as they were there, a raid began, but this is evidence of the pluck by then of what the British populace. As the raid began, the ball continued, even though they could hear the guns going off outside. But simultaneously, this very severe raid was ramping up, and this very popular nightclub, Café de Paris, was in full swing with a band and dancing and so forth, when a bomb penetrated to the dance floor and detonated, causing really macabre wounds, and also some very strange wounds. Like there was one table of six people who were all killed but showed no visible signs of injury. Bombs can have that effect. Explosions can have that effect. 
but it was particularly significant because here was this juxtaposition of Mary at her thing and this bomb destroying the Café de Paris, and that's where Mary and her friends were headed after the Queen Charlotte's Ball. And then when they arrived and found the streets all clogged with ambulances and so forth and learned of the damage, they were, of course, deeply moved, but they went dancing anyway. <laughs> they went <laughs> elsewhere. It just speaks to what you talked about a little bit earlier with people just going about their lives, understanding that they were risking it all, but at the same time, just getting to a point of saying, I'm not going to let this allow me to remain miserable forever. The way to think about it is it's the sort of thing where you could not point to any one individual in London in that period and say, okay, that person's going to die tonight, right? But you did know beyond a doubt that that night hundreds would die. You just didn't know who or where. And when you think about that, that's a very sort of chilling circumstance in which to live. And you have a choice. You can just climb under a rock and cower there for the rest of the war, which is definitely not tenable. Or you can decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to live my life as best I can. And if my number is up, my number's up. And that's the path that a lot of people chose to take. Near the end of his first year in office, Churchill visited Plymouth after it had suffered through extensive air raids. Why was Churchill more affected by his visit to Plymouth than the numerous other bombed-out cities he'd visited in the previous 12 months? He was deeply affected because the damage was so extensive, so tremendous, so wrenchingly appalling, and it just moved him very, very deeply. The worst of the aerial assaults on London occurred on May 10, 1941, but those attacks slowed significantly after that. Why? Well, yeah, May 10, 1941 was really when this most important German air campaign came to an end. When I say most important, I mean this period that was encompassed by Churchill's first year as prime minister included the so-called Battle of Britain, the Blitz, and then another six months of intensifying raids at longer intervals. And this was the big campaign by the Germans against Britain. There were subsequent raids, and of course the V1 and V2 weapons, But on May 10, 1941, this very, very intense raid, which, by the way, some thought that it might have been actually directed at Churchill and trying to knock out the government as one sort of last gasp. But much to everybody's surprise, the next day there was quiet. The next night, even though it was beautiful weather, there was no raid and there was no raid after that and nothing after that. The campaign had come to an end. And what that represented really was, in a very real sense, Britain's first victory. They had toughed it out. They had not caved in to Hitler, and they were able to proceed from there. Of course, make no mistake, the war lasted another four years, and some of those years, especially in 42, were exceptionally dark. But it was that first year that kind of set the pattern of this defiance and confidence against all odds. Eric, I first became familiar with your incredible storytelling style through the devil in the White City more than a decade ago. Fittingly enough, I guess, I was living in Chicago at the time. I was just blown away by what you were able to do in that book. I've been looking forward to a movie or television series based on this incredible book since then. Is there something that's coming out down the line in that regard? You've been looking forward to it, so have I. <laughs> uh, this book has probably been one of the most serially optioned books in the history of literature. But anyway, the way things stand now is that the plan is to produce an adaptation of the book as a Hulu limited TV series. Hulu, as you know, did The Handmaid's Tale. And boy, if they do my book anywhere near as well as they did The Handmaid's Tale, I am going to be tickled. It makes me happy to hear when books are being turned into limited series because it actually does give you more time to 
get into the underbelly of the characters, or the underbelly of the story more so than a movie that can only spend an hour and a half to two hours to try and jam everything in from 500 pages. Yes, I am very pleased with this. Originally, the first few options all contemplated a feature-length film, but then the decision was to make it as a Hulu limited TV series, and I agree. I think that is absolutely the way to go, especially because the plot of Devil in the White City, the murder story and the building of the World's Fair, it's very hard to capture those in a single 90-minute to 120-minute film. So I'm really looking forward to see what they do. Have you actually gotten to hold court with Scorsese and DiCaprio in the same room? No, I haven't gotten through the whole court with them. And you know what? I'm a very big believer in let the film guys do what the film guys do best. This is their art. I believe in, I'm going to paraphrase this, but I believe in something that Tom Jones once said. He said that the thing you want to do is you want to bring your book to the fence, hand it over, take the bag of money, and run. (laughs) You know, you said you're not great at quotes. That was a fantastic quote you just pulled out right there. Eric Larson is the author of six national bestsellers, Isaac's Storm, The Devil in the White City, Thunderstruck, In the Garden of Beasts, Dead Wake, and the most recent addition to that list, the book we've been talking about today, The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Eric, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Thank you very much.